Hadley Fisher, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast, mate. It's awesome to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Talk to us a little bit about where you are in the world. So, as we record this, I'm in Basel, Switzerland, which is the uh, pharmaceutical capital of Europe, city of about half a million people. And I'm here because um, my wife is from here and it's um, late late evening which is early morning for you over in oz there and um yeah um this is home absolutely man i know you touched on it it's late evening over there you're you're a little bit of a workhorse recording this podcast over at 10 30 p.m while it's just starting the day over here it's about 8 a.m so thank you so much for doing that mate i really appreciate it not a worry it's um no it's great and um you know I, I, you know i spend most of my time you know, working to an Australian schedule. So, um, you know, on my computer, I actually have the Australian time and you know, do, a lot of, um, do a lot of work back in Australia. So um, makes total sense. Absolutely love it. And you guys may know or may have heard of the Resilience Agenda, which is an incredible organisation to change the stigma around mental illness and try and make it, you know, fit into society as we would think about our fitness or our nutrition or, or, or make it a part of our everyday lifestyle. And, and I love everything that you've done, Hadley, with the Resilience Agenda. And I've just got my hands on one of the, the diaries, which I'm, I know we'll touch on later in the podcast, mate. But for the listeners at home, before we get into all of that, talk to us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a suburban kid from um, eastern Melbourne. And yeah, it's one of those things that you don't really uh, you don't really know what's normal or not until you get out in the big wide world. But uh, um, on on one hand, I had a you know a, a lucky childhood um, in that way. Growing up, I had the opportunity to go to a, a good school, um, and then you know went on to university, and that set me up for um, you know a good life. On the other hand. Um, I've yeah experienced different things. So I grew up in a family affected by mental illness. My mother has had bipolar uh, um, for forty years. I uh, had to go and visit um, different hospitals when I was a kid for a month or two of the year, and that was that was unusual. And um, you know, I've got some 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 bad memories of of that experience. Um, went travelling for six months in 2009 and um, came back and my father had had a, a burnout or a breakdown of some sort and he hadn't left the house for nearly a year. Um, so I had to reluctantly put him into a, uh, a facility as well. I don't think he's really gotten over that because he's still of the old school belief that having a mental illness is a weakness. And then in more recent times, you know, my brother has had um, his fair share of, of issues as well. And then from a personal level, although I've never personally been diagnosed with a mental illness, um, had my fair share of ups and downs. You know, uh, I was bullied as a kid. Um, I was very often on the heavier side as a kid. Um, I'm sure you can relate to that. Definitely, um, yep. And, you know, it... it it creates some degree of resilience, but it also leaves its mark as well. Um, but I think, in some ways, I've I've um, I've dealt with what I need to deal with. 
I've put behind me what I need to put behind me and yeah, used used wherever I could as fuel to to get me to where I am now. And you know, now I I look at my life, look where I've come from, look at who I've become and the, who I've become through that process and uh yeah, just feel, you know, very grateful. Absolutely, Hadley, and it's it's evident in everything that you're doing with the resilience agenda. How do you think that facing, you know, your family battling mental illness enabled you to sort of mature or grow up earlier, for lack of a better term? How do you think that played an impact on your later years in life? I'm not sure if I did actually grow up earlier. Uh, I certainly wasn't, you know, a pioneer in championing the mental health cause. Um, I remember I had a 21st birthday party and a friend asked me, where's your mum? Yeah, because normally your mum's at your 21st. Uh, and I, had, I said, oh, she's in the hospital with a heart disease or something or heart condition. And that was just one of many examples where I made an excuse for when she wasn't around. Um, and it was only later when I started opening up, you know, with the work of, um, you know, a lot of the public health campaigns that made it acceptable to talk about this sort of thing. And then became a bit of a leader in one of my workplaces around it that uh, I saw, yeah, you know, I saw it all around me. And, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things about, about mental health is that the more you talk about it and open up about your experience, whether it's your own or caring for others, the more people are drawn to you. And, um, you know, I always want, I've always loved people. I've always, and, and that's something that's grown over the years. And the more you open up about this, the more people are drawn to you. They, they trust you. They, they warm to you. Um, and, yeah, um, you know, this whole being real thing um, certainly took me a long time to learn. I wasn't like this 10 years ago. Um, so on the one hand, it's been a journey to get to where I am. But on the other hand, um, do I regret not knowing it earlier? I don't know that experience of vulnerability that people can relate to and people really can see that you're, you're being vulnerable in that stage and really appreciate that and offer that support there, Hadley. And you mentioned earlier at your 21st birthday, you sort of masked the fact that your, your mum was in hospital with a mental illness. Why did you feel the need to not hide the truth, but, you know, like make another um, excuse for that reason? Did you feel like that the stigma associated with mental illness was sort of like a, it's weak to speak. Talk to us a little bit about that process. Well, the worst thing when you're a kid or when you're growing up is to be different for a reason that you don't choose. Um, and the last thing on my mind was that someone else might have had a similar experience. And the last thing on my mind was that me talking about it could help other people, make them feel less alone or make them feel less lonely or, or more accepted. And that's something that, you know, in my work I've been doing over the last three or four years has really, has really become apparent and you know, really been very satisfying. And it's something I'd encourage all your listeners to do is um, if there's something that you've opened up about a little bit or that you're thinking of, sitting on the fence, can I open up more about this? It's, it's not always easy, but you just don't know um, 
you just don't know who might be listening. You don't know who might need to hear what you've got to say at that very point in time. And the more and more, you know, we're open about it, whether it's online, um, whether it's on podcast, whether it's in a phone conversation, whether it's ordering a coffee and just asking a person literally how you're going and, and, re and really listening to the answer and just getting a sense of where people are at. That's, um, that's, uh, that's been a journey and that's been, it's been really valuable. Absolutely Hadley. And before we take this podcast any further, I'd really love to get your definition of mental illness and, and what that sort of word is associated with you. Well, for me, mental illness um, is, is inescapable from stigma. And when, you know, when I, when I, I've asked people before, what, what do you think of when you think of mental illness? And the three words that come to mind for most people are anxiety, depression and suicide. Um, they're, they're common responses. And then, of course, there are your more serious and severe and, and disabling conditions as well that you know, a small, small number of people have as well. In terms of a definition of it, it's basically, um, this is not the dictionary definition, but my definition of it is something that prevents you from living a life of contribution, connection um, and meaning, however you might define it. Um, and so one of the things that I'm really big on is rediscovering the meaning of mental health. Um, if you look at the, you know, the official definition of mental health, it is, it's, it's the opposite of what I just mentioned. It's the ability to contribute and live a fulfilling life. It's, um, you know, uh, the ability to um, adapt well to your circumstances. And that's, that, that's one of the things that I think we've lost. Um, you know, mental health has come to mean mental illness. And there's so much more to it than that. I really love that definition there, Hadley. It's really personalising it and it links back to everything that you're doing with the resilience agenda. How do we change the, the way we approach that and start looking at mental health from a positive outlook? Well, the first thing I want to say is that, you know, the, the, the destigmatization and the normalisation of mental illness over the last 10 or 15 years, the work of Beyond Blue, Sane, Black Dog, um, it's been great. Um, and then the celebrities coming out, footballers, um, politicians, you know, film stars, musicians, whoever, that's great too. Um, but I think we're still missing a lot of people in the conversation. A lot of people still think that mental health, um, not just mental illness, but mental health, is irrelevant to them because they haven't experienced it themselves or because they haven't had family members or friends who have experienced it the way I have. And then for a lot of other people who have experienced it close up, whether it's suicide or an episode of anxiety or depression, it comes as this big surprise. And uh, from, from, from the discussions that I've had with people, um, there's this sense of there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you know, it's always permanent. You're broken. Um, there's something wrong with you and that's what we need to change. And so one of the things that I love to talk about is this idea of mental fitness, which is there are some things that you can do um, to work on, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, work on your mental health. Now you can be a marathon runner or a triathlete and still get cancer. So you can be as physically fit as you want, but still get a physical illness. And it's exactly the same as mental health. You can do all the right things um, for mental health, 
and you may still experience a mental illness, have a recurrence of a mental illness, but some things help. Just like if you smoke, there's a good chance you'll get lung cancer, and if you eat too much um, fat or rubbish or sugar or whatever, you will you know, put on weight. These things you know, fairly well established. Similar sort of thing goes for our mental health. Now, some of the connections aren't quite as, as strong um, in terms of what causes damage, but there are some things that, you know, that, that, we, that we can work on. So sleep, for example, and I know it's a chicken and egg situation for people who experience depression, but if you get less sleep, your, um, you know, your chance of experiencing higher levels of anxiety or depression. If you don't have meaningful relationships in your life, there's a correlation between um, loneliness uh, and, and lack of connection, lack of real-world connection, and depression. Um, when you go and see a therapist about um, recovery from depression, one of the things they get you to do is exercise, which I like to relabel movement because a lot of people are put off by the idea of big chunks of effort in exercise. Movement can be anything from getting up out of your chair to taking the stairs, anything that gets your breath going a bit. And it's little things like this, um, as well as some of the, the trainings we can do around you know, things like meditation, gratitude, building optimism, um, reframing negative emotions, empathy, and looking at things from a different perspective. These sort of things can help you build your mental, your mental fitness or your mental health. And part of what they do is they keep you balanced or centred or um, mindful or aware of just how it is you're thinking and feeling, which makes you more able to respond to things, um, which means that before things get out of control, you might be able to nip them in the butt. Not always the case, um, but in general, it's better than doing nothing. And the other thing about these things is they're useful and practical for their own sake, so it's not just about preventing mental illness. They actually help you get through the day with more energy, like a lot of the things that you would um, speak to your listeners and clients about. Um, they help you get through the day with more energy, more clarity, more focus, more attention, more calmness, more meaning. And they have a side benefit that they might just um, build your resilience and build your capacity for handling big stuff later on. And that's why I'm so passionate about talking about this sort of thing. Yeah, definitely, Hadley. And you, you touched on the mental fitness plan before. What is your mental fitness plan? I know it can be personalized for everyone. And how does someone develop a mental fitness plan that suits their lifestyle? Good question. So the first thing you've got to do is decide that you know, mental health or mental fitness is important to you. And that could come from you know, recovering from or trying to get over a... Uh, um, about of, um, of, of, of mental ill health or it could be something you want to train more proactively which is I suppose where I came into the picture and I want to, I've always been um, yeah, I've always been a sports person I've always tried to build my fitness um, and then when I started learning about positive psychology and emotional intelligence and resilience I thought yeah these ideas aren't that well packaged up so I want to put them together and basically it expanded my uh, understanding of what fitness means because um, the mind-body connection is something that is slowly um, slowly 
um, gaining momentum, but a lot of people think it's kooky. A lot of people think I haven't got time for that. My habits are too ingrained and so I'm just gonna focus on my physical health. And so that was what I was keen to do. And then once you've decided that mental health or mental fitness is important to you, you've got to prioritize it. And this is where I love the metaphor of fitness um, because we all know what fitness involves. Even if we don't actually do it as well as we might like, we know that it involves goals, discipline, measurement, um, maybe a bit of sacrifice. You can be social, you can do it alone. It requires doing something regularly, routine, it takes effort, you have setbacks, maybe you have some injuries. And all those things happen with our mental fitness as well. And so it's about integrating a mental fitness regime into your life. Um, and so uh, we have a thing called the Mental Fitness Toolkit, which are 10 really valuable um, factors that influence your mental health. And they are movement, nutrition, sleep, relationships, and mindset. And one way or another, those five things will impact your mental health, whether you like it or not, whether you focus on them or not. And then we have another five factors, which we call the framework, which is optimism, mindfulness, gratitude, reframing, and perspective. And to some extent, we all have these, but these are things that can be trained. And it's about learning to reinterpret your thoughts, learning that your thoughts aren't automatic, um, training, training optimism. A lot of people say that they're grateful people, but do they actually do it on a regular basis? And so it's about finding and making time to do two kinds of activities. One is um, just thinking about these things, and um, that might involve reading, might involve writing about it, it might involve just thinking about something you're trying to work through in a practical and structured way. And the other way is some of the you know, more traditional techniques like mindfulness meditation, deep breathing, um, showing empathy for others. These things just, I guess, take you out of your own self for a little while and allow you to get a different perspective. And um, that's part of it. So what do I do for my mental fitness? I try and focus on my strengths. I'm not equally good at all those things, but um, I know where my strengths lie. I'm, you know, I like to meditate most mornings, but I'm not yet at the point where I do it consistently for the same amount of time every morning. Things come up. Um, earlier in the earlier in the year, I was um, back in Australia for about eight weeks when my mother was in hospital for three weeks, and she was very close to dying, and it was really stressful. She wouldn't wake up. For a whole, uh, for a whole, yeah, for a whole three weeks, and that was when I retrospectively looked back on the toolkit and thought, okay, I've come back to Australia here. I'm in this stressful, stressful situation. I need to make sure that I'm reaching out to people so I've got support, even though it's hard. I need to make sure I'm getting plenty of sleep. So I cut back on my coffee intake, which is always a challenge for me because I love coffee, but <laughs> like, I was aware of it. I was aware of it, and so it's something I had to be mindful of. I had to make sure that um, you know I didn't drink too much at the time, and you know this affects things as well. Um, I needed to be sharp because I was in an important uh, time with the business, so I had to be careful what I ate when I tried to do you know deep work. I didn't want to be feeling sluggish for for, for hours after eating lunch or dinner. 
Um, and then, you know, I was grateful for the opportunity to be there with mum and I, I, would, I would reflect on that regularly. When I was with her, and this is something I was really, really, really big on, and I'd encourage people to think about this if, if you've got something, like a sick person in your life. When I was with my mother, as a general rule, I didn't use my phone in her presence. And that was about being mindful and present. And it just allowed me to create these great memories of being with her. Sure, it got boring occasionally, but that was something that I was really focused on. I wasn't scattered or distracted. Um, I was optimistic on the one hand that she might get better, but part of optimism is how you explain um, explain bad events. And that's what Martin Seligman's all about. He talks about learned helplessness and the three Ps. Is something going to be um, permanent, pervasive, and personal? And so what that allows us to do is explain an event where I'm not at fault or it's not going to be, you know, uh, it's not the end of the world. It was obviously going to be sad if you were to die, but it's not the end of the world. And her passing isn't pervasive. It doesn't affect every part of my life. And learning how to make those distinctions is really valuable. And then perspective was about, you know, what do people have worse experiences than me? Um, I've been able to come back and visit her a couple of times over the last few years. Um, and, yeah, putting that toolkit into place um, before I, I went, and obviously the work I do allows me the luxury of being able to focus on it each day, um, but then being able to look back on it during a really challenging time made it so um, made it so worthwhile. And so just knowing the levers you can pull, knowing the strategies you can turn to, and there are others. You know, it might be you know switching off your phone for a day a week. It might be getting out into nature. There's all sorts of different things you can do. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter what. The idea is that you try and integrate it into your daily life and your daily schedule. Um, so that it's habitual, so that it's routine, much like what we do with our nutrition and workouts. We make habits. You know, I'm sure you'd, you'd, um, you, you talk about this with, with your clients a lot. You try and build habits. It's the same for your mental health. But most people don't have a, a structure in place. They don't have a, a set of tools or levers to refer to. And very often they don't have a big enough why um, when it comes to, you know, why should I care about mental health? And as part of the background to what we do, we say do this because it will make you feel great today, but do it also because, you know, things change in the future and you're going to want a whole bunch of resources that you can use. And no one's motivated by long-term health or what they're going to be like when they're old. But if you can, you want to avoid some of these pretty, um, pretty stark statistics around rates of mental health, such as one in four people will experience it in a given year, one in, one in two people will experience poor mental health in a lifetime, 35% of people don't seek help. Um, very often we wait until we're in a crisis, and we wait till it's too late. And, you know, the, the advice to go and seek help and professional help is certainly extremely valid when you're um you know, when, when things have fallen apart 
but it's in that zone between everything's fine and I really should need to, you know, I really need to go and see someone where a lot of time can, a lot of time can pass and a lot of bad habits can be built and a lot of um, good things can be, um, can be missed. You know, my brother, for example, he's been um, struggling for a little while and it's taken him four or five years to get help. And, you know, I would love, I would have loved for um, him to have had a, a set of knowledge or a set of tools um, that might have made conversation easier, that might have made getting help less stigmatised. Um, much like going to a physio or a massage or a sports doctor, there's absolutely no shame in that. What we want is for the same thing around um, improving our mental health. And what most people do is they wait until things are really bad and they go and see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But what we want to get to is the point where you know, people are open about this well beforehand. There's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, I'm going to go and work on my mental health. You might need some support. And I think personal trainers actually in the future will, um, um, will offer this service, um, or many of them will. Um, it won't be psychology services. They won't be diagnosing anything. But they'll be adding extra tools to the well-being um, knowledge base of someone who comes to see them, and I think that's where we're going to be going. So in, in, in ten years from now, not working on your mental health is going to be as unusual as not working on your physical health at all these days. Now everyone knows that they should work on their physical health, even if they don't. It's going to be the same for mental health. And um, the founder of Nike, Phil Knight tells a great story in his book, Shoe Dog, about how 40 years ago, running and exercise and fitness um, were fringe activities, just like mindfulness or, um, or, or, or well-being is a, is a bit of a fringe activity now that includes mental health. And you know, Nike came along, they sponsored athletes, they brought out great products, and they... They change the way we talk about fitness and well-being. I'm very sure the next step is going to be the same for our mental well-being. What form that takes, is it apps, is it products, who knows? But I think that's where we're going. Yeah, absolutely, Hadley. And thank you so much for sharing those um, set of tools that people can use to develop their own mental plan and a mental fitness plan, sorry. And I, I guess the main thing that I took out of that was that the mental fitness plan doesn't have to be set in stone. If you can go back and, and use those tools as a resource to create a mental fitness plan for each different situation um, that you face in your life, I think that it's going to create resilience and it's going to enable you to be able to get through situations a lot easier by having those resources on the side. Would you agree? Yeah, totally agree. And yeah, different different times of your life or different situations will call for different um, different methods or different strategies. Um, but it's having having them close to hand. It's having them um, as reminders or having them within reach. Um, you, know, you can either memorize them like I have. You can have, you can refer to them on the website like a lot of our um, supporters do, or 
there are other methods that we'll come to shortly where these tools, you're just prompted to think about them. And I'm a big believer in the behavioral science approach, which says that, you know, you can nudge yourself into thinking or feeling or acting a certain way by changing your environment. You can put prompts or tools or whatever in your environment that can help you build these strategies. So for example, I like to, uh, I like to drink tea and coffee. So every time the kettle boils, I'll do five push-ups or five pull-ups. That's just my ritual. Whenever I jump in the shower, I try and breathe deeply and focus on being present in the moment. Whenever I brush my teeth, um, I try and focus on three things that I'm being grateful for that day. And that builds a, a reservoir of, of positive things in your life so that when you're having a really tough day, not everything totally sucks because um, our minds are like Teflon for good events and like Velcro for negative events. And you know, we're constantly putting out our feelers for everything that's going wrong around us, whether it's in our own lives, the things we don't have, the problems in our relationships or um, you know, what's wrong with the world. But we often don't see many of the good things that happen as well, even when um, you know, bad things are happening around us. Now, the time to um, practice gratitude or looking at for the silver lining is not when you've had your entire life swept out from under your feet when someone's died or you've lost a big relationship or something like that. It's everyday uh, things that are the time to, 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 to practice that so that you've got those techniques and habits in place when something big comes along like it did for me in, in, in May and June. Mate, that's unbelievable. I really love that idea of connecting, you know, a mental fitness process with a physical thing that you're doing. Like you mentioned about in the shower, that's your time to reconnect with your mind and, and take some deep breaths and really be present in the moment. I really love that. And I think that's a really great tip for all the listeners at home. Now, just touching back again to what you said about how our brain clings to negative emotions like Velcro and Velcro and then it's like Teflon with good things. Do you think that that's associated with the stigma around um, bragging about positivity and, and talking about positivity in your own life that people sort of associate that as a negative way? Like if, if someone, something's happening really positive to someone and they're talking about it, people often don't want to hear that. Do you think that stems from that sort of philosophy? Um, partly. Um, yeah, I often think about that, whether whether being cheerful or being positive is is showy or or bragging um on the one hand you've just got to be you um and you don't want, and you don't want to bring people down like you know um you don't want to yeah you don't want you don't want negative energy um to be your calling card and, and, and no one likes being around negative people um, for a long time. Of course, we've all got issues um, from time to time. What I'd say there is people, people, people don't, whether it's on social media, with people showing off how great their lives are on Instagram, or whether it's just, you know, they're, they're boastful in person. I think it's only an issue 
when that person takes no interest in the other person. So if it's always about me, 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 and they don't ask good questions, they don't ask how you're going, they don't remember little facts about your life, um, and they don't make you feel like you know, you're important or valued, then it becomes an issue. But I think most people, yeah, like, like hearing inspiring things from people around them if it's, if it's shared in the right way. There's a funny quote by the writer Gore Vidal, and he says, um, every time a friend succeeds, a part of me dies. And it's a bit of a joke, but I think that's how a lot of us are. And it's very easy to be like that on social media, for example. Um, and, you know, if you've got 500 Facebook friends uh, and you're at work or you're on the train commuting, there's a very good chance that one person is going to be sitting on a beach having more fun than you at any moment in time. There's a good chance that one person is going to be um, starting a business. One person is going to get a promotion. Um, they're going to earn more money than you. And so it's very easy to, to look for, you know, the perfect lives of other people. And one of the great things about empathy, which is a big part of, of, of building mental fitness and building resilience, is that if you can understand what it's like to be someone else, things only look perfect from far away. And things only look perfect, and that only needs to make you feel bad and make you feel inadequate when you haven't taken the time to go deep. So I've got a friend, for example, who was very successful um, out of uni um, uh, with, a, with, a, with a business and made lots of money and everyone was very, everyone was very um, envious of him and thought he had it all made. And it turns out in the last five to ten years he's been um, losing a lot of that. Uh, it hasn't quite gone to plan. Uh, concurrently he's had, you know, this is not, um, not necessarily um, as a result of those things happening, but he's also had uh, a lot of mental health issues as well. And instead of people asking, how is he? How's he going? Um, they're very quick to, to judge his fall from grace. And that's the easy thing. It's the easy thing to do. That's the easy way out. But um, yeah, if you build empathy and you can try and look at someone, something from another person's perspective, what struggles might they have, and then actually ask them about them, people will love you for it. People will love you for it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's enabling you to connect with them and really relate with the situation they're in. So I really love that. Hadley, now, mate, you are doing incredible things with the Resilience Agenda, and I'll leave that over to you to explain what this is and how you decided to, you know, change the approach and, and come up with the Resilience Agenda. So for the listeners at home, talk to us a little bit about what the Resilience Agenda is and, ha and how did you start it, mate? So I was travelling with my wife. I was just about to move over to Switzerland about three years ago. And... I was, you know, it was a sunny, hot August day. Came back to my hotel room and did what everyone does when they come back to the hotel. I checked Wi-Fi. And on my phone, I had three or four messages from friends telling me how much they were struggling. Um, 
you know, they knew that I was interested in mental health and they thought that I'd be a good person to turn to. I got a phone message from my father saying that my mother was back in hospital again. And there were several voicemails from my brother saying that he was you know, really battling. And um, my first thought was, has the world gone mad? And, you know, all that's to say that this is really common, this stuff. And I was moving over to Switzerland. I was going to be doing a master's of business. I uh, was going to be consulting back for my company in Australia. And I thought, I'm going to have some time for a project here. And like a lot of young people, I had been looking for my purpose and my passion and, you know, my way to make a difference to the world. And, you know, a lot of young people are doing that. And what I realised was that my passion and purpose had been staring me in the face all these years. But for so long, I'd been too ashamed to admit it. So for anyone listening, my advice is look for the most embarrassing or you know, the biggest problem you've got or a problem in your life. And that might well be you know, a strength that you can share with others and, and use to inspire other people. So um, over the last few years, I've been you know, exploring self-development and personal development. Some people call it self-help. It's got a bit of a bad reputation, but um, um, you know, I was a bit of a, a personal development junkie. I love learning. I love improving myself. Loved figuring out the differences between people. And I thought, this is working. And then one day, um, I was having a chat to someone about how I was becoming more interested in mental health. And as I use that term, their eyes glazed over and they yawned. And it was it was it was just obvious that they that they the mental health conversation wasn't relevant to them or it didn't seem relevant to them. And then I think with the same person a couple of weeks later I used the term mental fitness, and their eyes lit up. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like what you do for your physical fitness. And from that moment on, I was hooked on the term mental fitness. It just made sense. And when I was traveling, I decided I wanted to bring this message to the world in a um, relatable, simple, not too expensive way that didn't require uh, a PhD to understand everything that I'd read and learned and all the mentors I'd talked to. And that um, was, it was a way that could be integrated into your daily life. Now, three or four years ago, podcasts weren't, hadn't quite yet taken over the world, so I didn't think a podcast would be a great idea. Um, I didn't know how to code and didn't have a pile of money, so I didn't think an app would be a great idea. I thought I could start a charity, but then I'd have to go and um, you know, chase people for, for funds and fundraising. Um, I could have started a blog, but decided that you know, there was too much competition there, and you know, who, who was I? And I've been really interested in this idea of social enterprise, which is a business that can do good and do well at the same time. And that's what made sense to me. And I wanted to start a social enterprise also partly because the idea would stand alone on its own two feet. And if people were prepared to put money behind it, it must mean it's an okay idea. And then I was inspired by the Australian women's weekly diary i used to buy my mum 10 years ago that was a health diary about you know, go and get these checkups and drink more vitamin c and all that sort of thing and i thought i'm going to do that for mental health 
because here's a con here's a topic that uh, is important that is becoming more and more relevant but that people just aren't engaging with so i thought i'm going to combine the daily prompting of a 365 degree planner with um, mental health and here's the the why or the need behind um, behind what we're doing with a new approach mental fitness which basically tries to make it more relatable and a lot of people don't realize this but um, diaries and notebooks are actually coming back kiki k moleskin um, there's a few american brands hugely successful um, and especially amongst young people too because they want five or ten or twenty minutes out each day away from their phones where they can be in the zone um, and feel focused on planning their week or their day or reflecting or what have you and so i thought i'm going to make a diary and so three years ago, we did a small print run. We printed 2,000 of them. Um, they all sold out. People loved the idea. We did 6,500 last year. They all sold out. And this year, we decided to print nearly 13,000. And they've only been on sale for eight weeks. We've had over 5,000 orders, particularly amongst... Um, large corporations who are buying them for meaningful Christmas gifts. It's a great way of you know, telling your staff I don't, um, that, you know, that, that we care without changing the culture or you know, implementing a whole wellbeing program. Um, and there's, there's just a couple of really cool stories I'll share with you about the impact we've had. You know, the question I get asked all the time is, why don't you bring out an app and you know, aren't, aren't, aren't diaries dead? The answer to that's no. Um, and how can a diary have impact? Well, up to now, we've had over 10,000 customers in three years. Um, just in the last couple of months alone, um, the business has enabled over a million um, social media uh, impressions um, with our mental fitness idea. We've had over 100,000 website visitors. That's people coming to the website and learning about the mental fitness idea and the fact that you can have some impact over your mental well-being and some of those people you know, go on to to buy our diary so what is the diary it's a yearly calendar for 2020 um, it's got a weekly layout and you can use it in one of two ways you can plan your week like i do um, where you put in your key appointments especially your well-being appointments and this is one of the reasons why it's so popular We've all got Google calendars and Outlook calendars these days as well, but often you put your work stuff in there and a lot of people feel off-centred by work, they don't have enough work-life work balance, they want some me time. So what you do in your diary is you put, I'm catching up with Tom on Friday night and you put it, you highlight it in yellow. I'm going to the gym Monday, Wednesday and Friday at lunchtime. I'm going to meditate Tuesday and Thursday morning at 6.30. I'm going to go to bed at 9.30 and turn my phone off at 8.30. And it's basically a way of integrating the toolkit into your life. And then throughout the book, there's all sorts of inspiration, reminders and tools about the different strategies and habits you can implement. There's over 50 different um, strategies and tools you can implement. And what we have in there is um, 13 monthly mini blogs, I guess you'd call them. They're little... Um, they're little sections or, or segments that basically outline really important um, well-being topics. So 
So, for example, we might talk about things you need to know about mental health or mental illness and how to, um, how to relate to that. Talks about some of the background behind, you know, how healthy eating um, might affect your life, how you can develop a more positive mindset, how you can respond better to failure. Um, for example, a lot of people try and build workout programs and something goes wrong and they give up um, with, a, with a mindset of, okay, I haven't quite learnt this yet or I haven't quite mastered this yet or, okay, I need to work on something else first. That's how you work out how you build your mental, that's how you build your physical fitness. It's also how you build your mental fitness. There's also you know, basic tips for deep breathing, um, learning to become more aware, self-aware, um, habits for self-monitoring. Um, you know, there's different graphics in there. It's, it's basically a daily reminder, a daily personal trainer for your mental well-being. Now, it doesn't change the world. It doesn't solve mental illness. It doesn't um, take problems away. But it gives you a, a reminder and a set of strategies to become more intentional and it points you in the right direction for further information or for other kinds of support. And you know, the feedback we get from our customers is and our supporters um, is incredible. So one of the largest um, suicide prevention organisations in Australia, they order 100 every year and they give them out to their workers and their, and their staff so that they can proactively build their own well-being while they're dealing with really heavy um, topics. Um, another guy is in sales, goes out to order sales meetings. And what he loves to do is put his diary in front of him. He's got the logo on the front. And people ask him, oh, what's that resilience thing you've got there? Oh, and he says, oh, you know, it's just a, um, it's this mental health diary. And the client says, mental health diary? What's that? Oh, it's just about this company that talks about mental health in a more positive way. Oh, really? I've been struggling a bit myself recently. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this. And it starts a meaningful and open conversation. And then, yeah, there's been other stories. One lady wrote to me, um, and I'm very careful how I present this, this story. This is not what the diary does. But she wrote to me and said, your diary saved my life. Um, not because of anything it necessarily said or did, but because the idea that mental health or mental illness, rather, is not a life sentence, it's not always permanent or totally disabling, but it can be recovered from, can be managed. There is hope. That's, that's the message that she took from it. And that inspired her to go and seek treatment, try a few different things and that was really powerful and just one more story a lady uh, wrote to me a couple of weeks ago saying that her son had died in a car accident just two weeks before and he had found a lot of inspiration and, and benefit as a fit guy who wanted to learn about mental fitness last year she was going through his things and she found a note saying um, a little to-do note saying buy new mental fitness diary from resilience agenda and she got in touch with me told me this story and she's going to or she has um, ordered five of them for herself 
her um, daughters and her son's girlfriend, A, for the whole message that's inside it, but also as a reminder of something that her son found really valuable. And they're just a few of the examples of people who have found it really touching. Um, and that's what inspires me. Um, you know, I'm really, really keen for um, you know, more and more people to hear the message. And you know, the thing I make really clear to a lot of people is you know, not everyone's into diaries, but everyone, I would love everyone to be into the message. And at the moment, we have a website and we um, share the message through our range of products which communicate um, which communicate our message and that is that imagine if we could think of our mental fitness just like our physical fitness and if we integrated the same tools strategies and habits um, you know, into our into our routine and structure of our lives and it'll make a huge difference and you know um, that's what inspires me to get up each day and share the message um, you know, I'm reaching out to different organisations um, all the time. You know, I'd love for one of these to be on every desk in Australia by the new year, and we're hoping to grow. Hoping to grow next year. We're hoping to um, expand our footprint even more internationally. We've had orders from America, Canada, the Swedish seem to be really into it. They love um, the idea. Uh, there's been quite a few here in Switzerland, in Britain as well. Um, and so that's our goal. We want to, you know, get into retailers around Australia. We want to get into schools and organisations around Australia, and we simply want to say, here's this message that mental health is important. There's more to mental health than just mental illness. Um, if you've been put off mental health by anxiety, depression or suicide because those things haven't yet been relevant to you, we encourage you to give it another go. Um, if you do get the mental health message and you love sharing it, uh, mental fitness offers a great metaphor and set of tools for doing that. And that's one of the reasons, well, there are several of the reasons why, um, you know, we've got 15,000 social media followers, 10,000 subscribers online. And when people come across our message, they think, yeah, Great initiative. We like that. And that's what keeps me going. Wow, Hadley, I am absolutely blown away by some of those stories and how the the diaries have impacted people's lives and not just the diaries, it's the message behind them. And I, I really love the aspect of having a physical connection with actually handwriting things down. I'm a big, I'm really old school these days. I, I love planning all my uni assignments on pen and paper and then transitioning it over to the computer. I plan on my podcast questions on pen and paper and I really love that connection and it enables me to really focus on what I'm doing and be, you know, connected instead of just mindlessly doing stuff on my phone because it's so easy to change between applications and shift your focus within a number of, you know, seconds to focus on one thing like planning your day to the next scrolling through Instagram with, with the smartphones and, Yes, I really love that that connection with the physical um, with the physical thing. And why do you think people resonate more with the the handwriting as opposed to something that would be done on an application personally? So, it's a it's a personal preference, and a lot of people have just forgotten the art of handwriting. Um, but I just want to come back for for a second, if I can, to what you said about mindlessness uh, on our phones. Now, 
no one's advocating going back to a pre-smartphone world. But I think even the most technologically um, um, you know, advanced person would say, are you really supposed to be connected to it um, for 24 hours a day? Maybe just give it half an hour a day where you're not in your phone. And the, the, the thing that people sort of don't really get is that every interaction with your phone is not of equal value. You pick up your phone, you do all your high value activities first, you might check a hold of messages, send some important emails, learn a few things. And like you said, you get distracted. You get, um, you get drawn into this rabbit worm. And um, this is actually a chapter in our 2020 diary. There's a lady up in, um, up in Sydney, uh, a, a, a psychologist by the name of Jocelyn Brewer, who contributed um, some, some ideas for our, for our diary. And she asks us to consider three questions when thinking about what we do on our phones. Um, is it meaningful? So, you know, I mean, you know, sure, there's time for nine gag and mindless browsing occasionally, but are you spending too much time doing meaningless things on your phone? And I guess the question there is, how does what you're reading or viewing help you become the person you want to be? If you're not intentional about this stuff, then it doesn't matter because you don't really know. But if you're intentional and you've got a goal, whether it's in business or fitness or learning or, or relationships, then yeah, that's where the meaningfulness comes in. So that's question one. Is it meaningful? And then the next one is, is it mindful? Um, you know, one of the things that I've turned off all notifications off my phone. It doesn't beep at me. Red flags don't pop up at me. I've cleared my home screen. So if I want to do something on my phone, I have to consciously choose it. It doesn't tell me. Um, you know, I've, I've, I'm an email um, checker by habit. So I've moved the email function to the third page. So it's a bit harder to find. And this is about creating your environment so that it supports you know, good habits. Um, I take my phone out of the bedroom, for example. So I actually have a real alarm clock. Um, you know, for anyone who says, you know, my phone is my alarm clock, get an alarm clock. Um, and for the first hour of the day and the last hour of the day, except when I'm doing late night podcasts, I'm not on my phone and I feel amazing. Um, the blue light doesn't get to me. Um, little late night worries that other people decide I suddenly my problem before they go to bed don't become my problem. I can deal with that in the morning. And so that's, that's the mindful part. You know, am I choosing to you know, look at my phone or is it um, dominating me? And then the last one is pretty obvious and self-explanatory. Is it moderate? And, you know, everyone calls themselves busy these days, but those same people constantly on Facebook and Instagram. Now, they're great. Facebook and Instagram are great, but maybe half an hour a day is enough in one chunk. That's how to, that's how to be productive and efficient. Um, um, yeah, um, that's my... That's, uh, that's, um, that's the contribution. And that's what Jocelyn Brewer calls digital nutrition. Anyway, I've forgotten what the question was there. 
uh, Matt. Um, I got carried away by that one. <laughs> Adley, you answered that and a, lo- and a whole lot more. I, the question was, why do you think people relate to oh, physical yeah. connection as opposed to, you know, the... So, yeah, because, because, because people are finding, you know, I mean, technology is great, but they're finding that, you know, their phones do cause a bit of overwhelm and some of our stresses and anxieties, even if we don't realise it, come from our phones, whether it's checking emails, whether it's checking social media, whether it's trying to know every bit of news that's going on. Um, these aren't normal, natural things. They're things that we just develop as habits. Um, and what resonates about handwriting and what I love about journal writing, list making, um, diary entering is, well, for a start, um, we also um, produce notebooks that help people um, you know, with, with uh, the dot grid notebooks and also ruled line journals. The great thing about handwriting is that you have to structure your thoughts before you write stuff down. So think about when you're typing an essay or a document at work. You type something, just whatever comes to mind, and then you'll go delete, 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 type, delete. And so you'll keep constantly, you know, shuffling things around, moving sentences, putting words in here and there. It's very scattered. Because most people don't like making a mess when they handwrite, you think and then you go, you know what, that's what I'm going to say. And then you reflect on that. You think again. You say something else. And what that process does is it forces, forces you to structure what you're doing and part of structuring what you're doing is finding explanations. So when I'm anxious or I've got something I'm worried about on my mind, um, I'll go through the process of writing it all down. I'll brainstorm what's going on. I'll do pros and cons. And through that process, I'll come to an ultimate cause or an ultimate issue or an ultimate problem. And I'll be able to say, that's it. Or maybe it's that. And instead of having 10 things to worry about, I can worry about that one thing. And then I can go, okay, well, how am I going to solve that problem? Is it worth worrying about? I can put it into context. Uh, and that's one of the great things about um, handwriting and journal writing. And you've got to find the time for it. And I'm still not, um, I still haven't integrated that as fully into my life as, as I'd like. Um, and then the other one is, you know, so many people carry around so much junk in their minds and i used to be like this myself i used to pride myself on not writing things down the way the speed of life these days is that if you don't write stuff down or you don't put it in a place um, or you don't put it in one place it gets lost um so you know if nothing else use the memo pad on your phone use one note of course but what i love to do is write things down in a to-do list but in a to-do list based on priorities. So using urgent, important, urgent and important, not urgent, not important. And then when I fill up a page, occasionally I'll cross things out or tick things off. When I get to the next page, I repeat the entire process. All the things that remain on my list, I carry across, like Ryder Carroll suggests in his bullet journal, I carry them across to the next page. And the, the whole point of this is that it's inefficient. And um, what that forces you to do is, do I really want to carry this thing forward to the next page? 
or you know can I cross it off is it done is it not important anymore and the things that come across come across and then I allocate a urgency to it so I've got about a hundred things on my to-do list at the moment of which seven are urgent and four of them are urgent and important and the great thing about that is sometimes you'll want to do some work or you'll have 10 or 20 minutes to do something, but you just really don't want to think that much. So what I do is I open up my uh, notebook to the things that are urgent and important, and all I have to do is read the list. And I can decide whether something is the right amount of effort, too much effort, or not worth it. Where people get in trouble or procrastinate a lot and don't get things done is they don't have their next step or their next action lined up for an activity or a project. And that's, that's something I'm really big on. The other one is when you're making, um, when you're making a to-do list, make sure there's a verb in there, an action word. So, you know, a poorly put together um, list in my opinion says mum's birthday card. Am I supposed to make it, choose it, buy it, write in it, send it. And those, those things are called friction and they stop me making an easy decision. So it's mum's birthday in two weeks. I need to buy mum's birthday card. And so next time I go online, I've got two minutes. That's what I'll do. And so just little things like that, that um, are so easily done by hand. Um, you know, it's, it's boring for a lot of people, but there's actually science that says there's some kind of connection that happens between your brain and your hand when you're writing um, that isn't there when you're um, typing or you know, using your smartphone. doesn't mean those things aren't valuable. It just means for 10 minutes or 5 minutes or 20 minutes a day, um, there's a place for pen and paper. There's a place for thoughts because um, there's a guy called Daniel Neverton wrote a book called The Organised Mind, and he says, your mind is for having thoughts, not for holding them. And basically what he means is that you need some kind of database, some kind of cloud to put all your thoughts. You can put them on the real cloud if you like. For a lot of people, a notebook is really handy as well. How they between, my diary, between my diary and my notebook, both of which are Resilience Agenda products, plug, plug. Um, that keeps me organised. And yes, I still use Outlook. I still use calendars online. Um, but this is the system that works for me and that works for so many people. Hadley, that is absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm blown away by the, the ground that we've covered in today's episode and, and the information that you've relayed to the listeners. You've definitely opened my eyes to a few things and... and made me more inspired to put a lot more effort into my mental fitness plan. And, and I'm so grateful for this opportunity, mate. Before we wrap the, the podcast up, I'd, I'd love to know what you would say to 21-year-old Hadley, knowing what you do know now about mental health and, and mental fitness. And, and what would you say to yourself if you had that opportunity? I'm not sure if this is the most profound answer that I could give. But try and be open-minded 
to a future version of you that you haven't met yet. Um, I was, I wasn't, certainly wasn't as happy or as content or fulfilled or as purpose-driven as I am now when I was 21. In fact, in some ways I was unhappy, but uh, many ways I was unhappy, but um, I was still very confident in my beliefs and in what, what I thought was right. And um, I cut myself off from a lot of learning, a lot of mentoring, a lot of good ideas, just because of prejudices. And that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to make mental fitness so accessible. And I think the metaphor does that because you know, no one's against fitness. It's just some of us have worked it out. Some of us know exactly what they're doing. Some of us know what they should be doing. And some of us know it. Know it. It's something that they should do, but haven't quite learned what to do yet. So no one rejects physical fitness. Um, but I didn't even realise I had mental health um, when I was 21. Didn't realise I had mental health when I was 25. Um, because I had always associated mental health with mental illness. And so because of all the traumatic things I'd seen and the fact that I you know, hated psychiatrists because they took mum away and all this sort of thing, I didn't allow myself to be open to... Um, didn't allow myself to be open to the other side of mental health, which is that you can improve it, train it, manage it, monitor it, um, acknowledge it, just accept that you have mental health. And so my message uh, is to, if you have experienced poor mental health, either yourself or someone around you, um, and you just think mental health's this heavy, dark, terrible topic, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. There's another side to it. And for the other part of the audience that might never have thought much about it or only heard about it on the news, it's something you can, you can, um, you can create as a project. It can become a project. Um, I like to see my life now as a project. Um, my mental fitness is the big project of my life. It's the lens through which I look at the world and interpret what's good for me, um, what's right. Um, it encompasses so many things, my purpose, my relationships, um, my health. If people say that health is the most important thing to them, um, where's your mental health in that? And what are you doing for it? And a lot of people probably can't answer that question. Um, we've all got three or four things we do for our physical health. What are the three or four things you do for your mental health? And um, the other one would be yeah, if you've got a story to tell, um, even though it's hard, you might just be able to inspire someone else. You might be able to um, make someone else feel less alone which is something that I've only discovered in the last four or five years with my outreach work. And that gives me an immense sense of purpose. So if you're looking for purpose, um, yeah, it might just be something that's, something that's a bit dark or negative in your life that 
you know, that, that might be the inspiration for that. Um, yeah. Hadley, that was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for your time today and being so vulnerable in, in parts of this podcast and sharing your experiences and, and sharing how the diaries and, and in particular the things that you're doing at the Resilience Agenda have impacted people's lives in positive ways. So in a positive way. So that's a true testament to the things that you've created and I'm excited to see where the Resilience Agenda will be in the coming future, mate. Before we wrap up the podcast, where can we contact you and how can people get a hold of these mental fitness plan diaries? Sure. Um, so um, go to www.resilienceagenda.com um, and you'll find all the information you need there. You can buy um, the diaries in five different colours there. Um, we're also um, going to be launching a, a new version in March, April next year, which is a financial year diary. A lot of people have, uh, have asked us about that. Um, <coughs> and we're also going to be, uh, you know, we're also getting, um, getting started on our new product range for the year after. Um, we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash resilience agenda and instagram.com slash resilience agenda. Um, we love the idea of um, you know not only um, supporting um, our you know, supporting people through our our books, we're also uh, in the process of um, we're very very close to a uh, an arrangement with one of Australia's most preeminent organisations to donate ten thousand um, dollars for mental health research and interventions. So. That's something really exciting as well. Um, and, yeah, if you really want to reach out directly, you can contact us at let's talk at resilienceagenda.com. Um, if you want to know more about you know, buying multiple orders for school or at work, just get in touch. So we're on Facebook, Instagram, resilienceagenda.com or let's talk at resilienceagenda.com. Hadley, thank you so much, mate. I'll have all those links in the show notes for you guys that want to get in contact or get your hands on one of those diaries. Hadley, thank you again, mate, for your time. Is there anything that you think we've missed in the podcast or do you want to leave the listeners with one final note? Um, did we have a, uh, a coupon code that the listeners could get a discount with? Yes, that's correct. So, guys, Hadley has been generous enough to allow you guys to get a little coupon code, which is Euphoria Health, and I'll have the link to that in the show notes, and that'll enable you to get your hands on the dyes at a discounted price and enable you to explore all the other resources that Hadley has to offer on the Resilience Agenda. So I'll definitely have that link for you guys in the show notes. Yeah, and um, I suppose you know it's a it's a bit bit of a plug, but um, you know if you're looking for a a meaningful Christmas gift for someone, you know quite a lot of our diaries, most of our diaries are given away as gifts, whether it's Kris Kringle or you know at work. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I first thought when I was creating this product was. Um, would people be stigmatized or would someone think, hey, this person thinks I've got a problem if they gave me a resilience agenda diary? And I was wondering about that myself. 
But in three years, it's never been an issue because of the language we use in our branding, in our comms, but also within the diary. Um, it's a nice way of saying, I care. Whether it's a person who has um, you know, something they're struggling with and it's a way of giving them you know, hope and encouragement, or whether it's just saying to someone else, hey, I, I understand that mental health is a big deal, well-being is a big deal, I'd love you to share my passion. Here's a way to, here's a way to um, you know, understand it all very simply. That's, that's basically what, what, what we're all about. And so um, if you want to support us, we really appreciate the, uh, yeah, the, um, the support. Absolutely love it, Hadley. Thank you again for your time, mate. I'll let you go get some rest. I know it's late at night over there. And, uh, yeah, enjoy, mate. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's been wonderful. And thanks so much for uh, inviting me on. Anytime. It was my pleasure.